I get a lot more meaning out of the work that I do, out of the people that I hang out with, out of the experiences that I have when there's less freedom, ironically, within which I get to choose from. So I think to me, freedom means the appropriate boundaries and constraints within which to play with full freedom. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Everyone that we talk to at HTYC wants freedom until they realize how it really actually works. One thing that comes up frequently while we coach people through the career changes is the idea of attaining freedom in their life and work. Freedom means different things for everyone. Sometimes it's freedom to travel or financial freedom or just having freedom and flexibility to be able to pick up your kids from school. For so, so long, freedom meant to me the ability to be able to do what I want, when I want, where I want. And I think there's still a big aspect of that. But what I've realized is that I really appreciate structure and boundaries and constraints because it gives you freedom within that to play. Now, that's Natalie Sisson. She's a suitcase entrepreneur and she has traveled around the world living and working wherever she wanted to. Now, later in the interview, Scott and Natalie talk more about how her definition of freedom has changed and some of what she has learned from talking with hundreds or even thousands of different people about what freedom really means to each and every one of them. After Natalie finished college, she worked in the corporate world before jumping into entrepreneurship, doing many different jobs around the world. Probably worked for eight years in the corporate world, which doesn't sound like that much now, but back then I was like, gosh, eight whole years eight in the corporate years. world um, <laughs> compared to the 50. And I really sort of threw myself into marketing roles that then yeah. progressed into brand management roles and event management, right through into ones in London. So I was in New Zealand for a bunch of those, but each time I kind of got the grips on the role and thought I was doing really well with it, I'd be like, eh, I'm a little bit bored now. I might quit and go traveling. And then I'd come back and I'd be broke. And so I'd, I'd get another job. And I kept kind of punching above my weight, which is, I don't know why. It's just something fun that I think all people should do. You don't know if you don't ask. And if you feel you have skill sets and experience, then I always think it's good to sort of, as I said, go for something a little bit further outside your comfort zone. So it yeah. stretches you. And I was really fortunate. I think I interviewed well and had a variety of jobs in healthcare, FMCG, so fast-moving consumer goods, pharmaceutical, safe gaming, construction industry, just really interesting, diverse mix of skills, but always around that sort of marketing, business development bent. And the last role that I had that probably gives it away was in London, actually, in a major role, and it was the head of propositions development. And my friends joked that I would be propositioning people, but essentially <laughs> what I was attempting to do was turn doctors into entrepreneurs, which really excited me. So I was supposedly meant to be helping them tap into some of the national healthcare system opportunities where they could actually bid for 
work to be the private clinic to do that. So it was a really interesting, exciting time over there. But the problem was is that the organization I worked for was so traditional and so uh, risk averse that even though they brought me in to do this role, I got to set up a new office, a new team, it was a brand new position. They pretty much blocked me at every single step. I, I kid you not, like I was meant to put together a pilot. It was such a struggle to get that past anybody in the senior management team. Um, I think they were very fearful of change. Yeah. And what seemed like a great role on paper and was a great role on paper and a really well-paid role. And my most senior one to date just felt so suffocating. And uh, I wasn't able to really do any of the things that they brought me in to do. And I just, I thought that was ridiculous for a start. And on top of that, I was in London. I was commuting every day. It was sort of wearing me down. You know, London is an amazing city. And once I got on my bicycle, that helped with the commute. But it's still just you never feel rich in that city. <laughs> it's, it is one of the most expensive cities in the world. We spent a month there. Um, oh, geez, I guess it was, yeah, we we pull our kids out of school and go and live for a month uh, in a different country pretty much every year. But we did that last year, last April. So about, uh, yeah, just over a year ago. It is a wonderful city. It is crazy weather and the bikes are cool. But I'm curious, what else, what else did you think of London while you were there? Because you were there for a couple of years. I was. I played a lot of ultimate frisbee, so I really found my crew, <laughs> my tribe there. I loved being able to walk or cycle down these yeah. amazing streets with history that was like over 500, 600 years old or more. I just loved the British accent, the complete, it's a melting pot there. You know, there's so many different religions and cultures, people from all over the world, and they all live pretty harmoniously, which I think is really special about London. It's super um, cool. And great food because there's because it's so eclectic exactly. too. And you can sort of wander into each suburb and you feel like you've kind of gone to that country. So there's like the Arab quarter and the Indian quarter and it's just amazing. So from that perspective, I loved it. And I think since the Olympics have been held there, that city has really shone. Um, they've done so much work to the infrastructure and public transport and buildings mm -hmm. and pathways. But when you're working there in a nine to five, yeah, not so much fun. If I was there now as a as an entrepreneur, in many ways, I'd love it. I'd sit in all these cool cafes and I'd I'd be at all the events. So London is amazing, but it's certainly like New York City. You do need the energy and you do need to be at a certain time in your life, I think, to really appreciate it and be part of it. So I got to this point, I was only a year into the job. This was pretty bad. And uh, I just got a raise and a promotion. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I don't even feel like I'm doing anything. I don't know how they've done that. And I just decided to quit. I just woke up one day and didn't want to go to work, which is so not my normal style. And it happened for the next two weeks. And I was like, two weeks is too long. I always am amazed when I hear about people who said, oh, I was in that job for two years too long. And I'm like, two years? <laughs> I just, Yeah, I just took massive action because life is too short. And I was like, this is clearly a gut feel and it, it feels right. Um, and yeah, took took the leap with no backup net, no safety net. I just co-invested in a house in London and decided to just buy a one-way ticket to Canada to play some World Championship Ultimate Frisbee and see if I could do my own thing. So it was quite a whirlwind ride, but I tend to like taking big leaps because I feel if you have a backup method, and I've not always been this way, but if you have a backup or safety method, which is quite a smart thing to do, you tend to revert to it. So in this case, I didn't want any of that. I just wanted to fly by the seat of my pants. These days, I'm a little bit more, um, I guess, wise, and I do have backups and plans in place. What happened with Ultimate Frisbee? That's the question everybody's dying to know. <laughs> I think it was a long pause and I was like, oh. <laughs> this was 2008 World Championships in Vancouver. I believe we came fifth or sixth and we lost to the 
GB team, the Great Britain team of girls, who I'd actually ironically been playing oh. with for two and a half years. But I had my best game ever because I knew how they played, and so it was really fun. But no, unfortunately, we played really well, though, and that was amazing. That was one of the most incredible competitive tournaments ever, so it was a great experience. Well, now that we've solved that cliffhanger, what uh, what <laughs> happened after that point? You had your best game ever in Ultimate Frisbee. How did you top that? I really do love telling the story because yeah. I think it's just one of those things yeah. where opportunity meets preparation meets a little bit of luck and hustling. And so I, Vancouver is the land of networking events. It's um, a beautiful city where lots of people love to catch up and network and entertain themselves, etc. And so I threw myself into going to as many networking events as possible. Through the connection of a friend of a friend, I ended up staying in an amazing apartment downtown for free for almost two months, which is incredibly generous of this person. And the whole time, which was very lucky because I literally had $2,000 to my name, I think, which goes pretty quickly in Vancouver, also not an inexpensive city. So a little hint to myself is if you're ever going to do a startup, don't pick one of the most expensive cities in the world to do it. And yeah, through those networking events, I actually met somebody who became my business partner and he had an idea for a software business. And I said, I'm a homeless, unemployed bum and here are my skills. And he's like, excellent. You sound like the person I need. I literally did say that. And yeah, next day we met up and from there it was just a whirlwind. He did actually pay me a salary, even though we were co-founders, but mainly because I had to survive. And he put money in because he'd recently sold a business. And it was just an awesome whirlwind 18 months of building this tech startup from nothing, using mainly social media and a whole lot of networking, which was my role, as well as the financial planning and, and bringing in investors. So I can't say enough for that experience, because when you've gone from the corporate world where you're kind of like in your role, and that's what you do, to having to do every single thing, it was mind blowing. It was a crazy great time. Well, and it sounds like you went to completely different contexts too, because I heard you say earlier, you know, I didn't feel like I was doing that much. However, they gave me a raise. And then you're going to the the startup context and now you have to work seven times as hard in some ways in order to generate what doesn't always feel like a, a lot. So it's almost a vice versa in some ways. I'm really wondering then at that point, what caused you to leave? What caused you to transition beyond that? Oh, well, it's a great question. So while I was there, I had been throwing myself into social media and you've got to imagine this is um, 2008 to 2010. So social media was still fairly new. I think Facebook was three or four years old. People were mainly still liking and poking each other and not using it for business. And our app was built on Facebook and was a payments related app. So it was pretty ahead of its time. And a lot of people were skeptical of even doing anything with regards to payments. There weren't many things that you could do on Facebook then. The advertising model wasn't fully in swing. It was pretty difficult, actually, in that kind of grind of the super long startup hours, lots of coffee, lots of hustling, lots of rejection. During that time, I started a blog to chart that and to talk about it. And I called it Woman's World because what I realized is I was meeting literally no female co-founders or founders or women who were starting their own tech businesses, and it felt pretty lonely. So I started blogging about the experience. And then I used that blog as a platform to interview some pretty amazing ladies. I mean, I literally had five or six readers, and then I'd share it with my network, and I got a few more, and I think I got up to like 100 readers. And even with no audience, really, I managed to get these cool interviews because what I found is women want to talk to women. They're more than happy to share their experience and knowledge. They felt really grateful to be asked. Um, And it, it grew from there, really, because obviously when you're interviewing great people. They tend to share it and then more people learn about you. And it was about that time that my business partner said, hey, Natalie, I think this blog 
is your passion. He's like, you're really good at it. You seem to love it. I was, you know, I was learning about everything. I didn't have an email list at that point, but I was just understanding how to gain attention. I was getting media. I was just hustling like crazy, building a community on top of the startup. And he said, maybe you should you should go after this thing because it seems like it's where your heart is, um, which was really great of him to see and acknowledge and not be like, what are you doing? Why are you spending all this time over here? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I never did it in, in our business time, but it actually helped, I think, because I did talk about our story as well. So it did help the business that we'd started. But I was like, yeah, you're right. So I took up his offer and about two months later, I finished up there on really good terms. And then I was like, oh my God, all I've got is a blog and <laughs> no way to get paid. <laughs> So pretty much six months of hard-learned lessons of building a community. I had no products for sale, no offers, no services, and finally actually got a consulting job just to tide me over, which was related to social media, and I really didn't like consulting at that point. It felt like I was sort of back being employed. And so not long after that, I was like, wait a minute, I have all this experience in social media for business. Businesses are reaching out to ask me about how to use it. Why don't I run a workshop? And I ran a two-day boot camp. I called it the Social Media Boot Camp for Entrepreneurs. And I tapped into some government funding. So I earned about $1,500 per person who came, but they only paid like a couple of hundred. I sold out. I had like 10 people in there. It was awesome. And I loved it. And I taught full on for two days and they learned tons. And then I repeated that two more times. And I pretty much went from broke because I really was broke to $15,000 in the space of a month. And I was like, huh, I'm onto something here. And then unlike most normal people who would stick around in the town that they'd now built up great relationships with and networks, I decided again, I think I'm going to take this on the road. There's nothing stopping me taking this workshop and putting it online, not that I'd done that before, and traveling the world while I'm doing this to really <laughs> test this out. So I don't think I always took the conventional route. Yeah, I'm sensing a pattern of the harder road here. <laughs> <laughs> Make it really hard for yourself, Nat. Um, so took off to the US initially, stayed with a couple of friends in Vegas, went to a few conferences. One of them was Blog World way back. And you know when you find those defining moments, that conference for me was a real game changer because I met people who were, I think I met Jonathan Fields there and Leo Babauter and Natalie Lussier and uh, oh my gosh, I'm just trying to remember some of the other names who were kind of big back then actually. And they were just my idols in terms of bloggers. I'd learned so much off them. I'd followed their work and here we were networking and hanging out and then they actually became friends. And it was just a really, a really interesting point for me to go, gosh, you know, I think I can do this. So while there, I decided to turn my workshop into an online course. I didn't, I just didn't, did all the things wrong. I like spent hours turning it into an online course, talking over the top of my PowerPoint, figuring out how to set up a, a course site because back then none of the things like Teachable and Kajabi existed. So it was quite a manual process. Figured it all out and then released it to my small list, and it was it was pretty sad, but it did work. I think I ran a webinar. 100 people signed up, 30 people attended, one sale after the webinar. I was like, oh, my God. And that was also a defining moment. I was like, somebody just paid me, I think it was 297 US for this course. Wow. And then I went on to sell more of it. And from there, just went, right, yeah, I think this is something I can work with. If I can continue to capture my knowledge and experience and skills and release it as products or programs, then why can't I do this just from my laptop and a Wi-Fi connection from anywhere? And tested that out by buying yet another one-way ticket to Buenos Aires, Argentina, just because I'd always wanted to go there yeah. and thought it would be a great place to, to live. How long did that last for you? 
that lasted five months, uh, which was actually my longest time and loved it, got Spanish lessons because my previous Spanish lessons showed me how different Argentinian is. It's beautiful the way they speak there, but I could not understand anybody when I got there. <laughs> Tested me a lot because the Wi-Fi internet there was just not good back then. So many things, like just too many changes at once, new new country, new city, new language, trying to find a place to rent, trying to make a group of friends, trying to start a business, all quite taxing, but what a ride. And then from there I went, right, now where do I want to go? I think I want to go to Amsterdam, spent two months in Amsterdam, rented an apartment. Ultimate Frisbee actually is a key part to the story because wherever I went, I kind of had a group of instant friends and it sounds strange, but for anybody who's played sport or as a hobby, there's something about being part of a community where people just get you and you can turn up and rock up and be yourself and and instantly find a group of like-minded people. So that was key. And in addition to that was the entrepreneurial community. So wherever I went, I tapped into those people, good places to stay, you know, recommendations around things and built up some really great friendships. And then I went to Berlin for two months. And from there, it's kind of a blur because they were the longest periods I ever stayed anywhere. After that, I literally bounced week to week, day to day all over the world for about six and a half years, which looking back is nuts to me. I really don't know how I had the energy and the drive to do that, but it was in my blood and I absolutely loved it. And I think it drove so much of myself, my brand, my business at the time. It was a part of my identity and it was certainly um, oh, just something I look back with so much fondness because it was amazing, but exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we uh, <laughs> we travel not that much, not anywhere close to that much. However, we've got a fair amount of freedom and flexibility, and our business is internet-based, and that allows us to be lots of different places. However, I hear six and a half years of bouncing around, and I'm, I'm already <laughs> exhausted just from the decision fatigue of you know, even deciding, you know, how is it? You know, like, where am I going to get? To, where am I going to get food? Where am I going to be staying? It's all of the little micro decisions that have a tendency to happen when, when you're moving around. Question number one, selfishly, as you were going through that process, what helped make that easier so that you weren't exhausted all the time? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I would make my travel decisions based on usually three things, which was, have I been to this country before and, and do I want to visit it? Which was quite often, yes, I haven't, haven't been. I've now been to 70 countries, but at the time I was like, hmm. The second thing was, is there a great event going on there, whether a personal or a professional, like a conference or a meetup or something that I really want to be part of or speak at, which started to be the case was I would often travel to speak in a country I hadn't been to. And third was, is there a great ultimate Frisbee tournament that I could take on? <laughs> And so if there were all three, it was a natural no-brainer. But even if it had just one of those things, it, was, it usually made it more attractive. The thing I think looking back is I would have really liked to have been smarter around how I bounced around the continents because, you know, back and forth across continents is pretty hard on the body and time zones. And so I would often, you know, like stick around in North America for a period of time. Then I'd go to Europe for a period of time. And then I'd go to Asia and I'd kind of cycle back and forth through that. But there were times when I was traveling for business events that I was speaking at or running and probably bouncing around a little bit too much. But I think what made it easy was one, those three criteria and just being really open to the opportunities that came my way. I was single, so I could, you know, it's it's harder when you've got family and et cetera. But I, I know many people who I interviewed on my podcast with yeah. families who were traveling around the world doing it and it always amazed me and what an experience for them and their kids as well. So yeah, I think as long as you've got solid criteria and what's important to you, 
These days I see more people doing what they call slow travel. So they will set up in a place for a month or up to six months. And really, I think that's a beautiful way of getting into the heart of a community and understanding the culture a lot more. Whereas when you're darting around like I was, you get a little peek at it, but you don't really fully understand and comprehend it. So the places that I loved, I'd often go back to to spend more time. And so I think it really depends on the type of person you are. A lot more people appreciate slow travel or even better is having a base for three to six months of a year in your hometown or wherever you love and then having that to go off and do your travel for up to three or six months at a time. So it really depends on the type of person you are and what you desire. That's interesting. I haven't heard it called slow travel before, but I definitely, mm-hmm. after trying both, I prefer the slow travel. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> it's better on the body and also better on the relationships and understanding <laughs> and just the, the experiences that you have. What caused you to, because at this point, you don't travel as much. You're not bouncing around to the same degree. What caused you to consider doing that differently? Well, a few things. Um, I think it's just a natural not end because I will still always travel. I love it. It's been instilled in me since a kid, but I think just a natural desire to slow the heck down. Um, I was really craving having a bit more peace and quiet and quite honestly, a base. The suitcase, as much as I'm excellent at being a minimalist, I kind of like was a little done with the suitcase now. I guess it was the point that it was starting to be a little less fun. And so I'm always really mindful the minute that happens, that's usually a sign. So that was part of it. I also came back to New Zealand because my dad got sick I was actually speaking in an event in Berlin one time and found out that he'd gone into hospital. And when you're 24 hours away, like just halfway around the world from your family, it's pretty tough. So I came back and um, he didn't get any better and he ended up passing away. And I think what I remembered in that time was, hmm, I think I want to be, you know, back here and closer to family because I really wasn't expecting to lose him that soon. And so when I came back in late 2016, I thought it would be, you know, let's give myself a chance to be back in New Zealand, which I still am biased as the best country in the world, settle in a little bit. And a big part of me also really wanted to get a puppy. I know this is the strangest thing <laughs> in the world, but I had always wanted a dog and you just can't have a dog when you're traveling like crazy. I also met a wonderful man. And so all these things kind of happened at once. And we ended up buying this amazing lifestyle property in New Zealand. He often jokes it's the most expensive dog house we'd ever bought, which was a great joke. But yeah, it, it's absolutely completely transformed or I guess changed my life 180 degrees from what I was doing, which was also a challenge in itself. And I'm happy to talk about that. But it's actually really lovely to be back in New Zealand with a base. And our intention and what we have been doing is having a base and then doing more minimal travel, because obviously we've got dogs now, and just really experiencing New Zealand from almost feels a little bit like from an outside perspective after being away for so long. It's like rediscovering your own home and, and what lies within it. What were some of the biggest challenges in that transition for you? Do you know what? I think it was the identity split or the the shift in identity because I'd been the suitcase entrepreneur for so long, you know, close to eight or nine years. And when I came back home, I felt a little bit like an imposter because I wasn't traveling as much. You know, when you're in the thick of something, you can talk about it and blog about it and write about it and be fully authentic with it. But when you're not there, it feels, it felt like I was kind of like trying to write about travel, sitting in a study in my home in New Zealand. That and the fact that I think I was a little bit past it by then, like I just really felt like passing on the torch to all these amazing young millennials and people who were traveling like crazy. and, And they had this enthusiasm and passion that I could see in myself five or six years ago that I no longer had. 
So that was interesting. And then on top of that, it was really just letting go of that identity that I'm not the suitcase entrepreneur. Sure, I started it as a brand, but there's many more people out there who are that and who am I now? So I think the biggest thing was figuring out, oh, I'm not this person anymore. I'm not that brand. Who the heck am I? What matters to me? What's important? And I tell you, Scott, it was really hard actually because when I first got back here, I stayed, sounds so odd, I was like the stay-at-home puppy mum on this big property. It was not huge. We have two and a half acres, but it's rural. Yeah, We call it a lifestyle property. So I was isolated, not traveling, at home with a dog that felt a little bit like a kid and also took a business sabbatical at the same time. And I wouldn't advise that either because as you seeing in my theme, that was just a little bit too much change at once. And everything that was me was kind of not there anymore. It was, was, I had somehow removed. So I, that was really tough because I kind of just mooched around really actually and let myself wallow in what's the next chapter and, and what do I want to do and what's important to me now and released a lot of that identity. Um, and I think it took a good, I kid you not, it probably took a good nine months to a year or more to really rediscover and figure out what was next. And that just shows you, I think, as as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, even if you have a, a long-standing career, that that transition time really does take a lot longer than you realize. And you've got to give yourself that space to just be okay with that. I think one of the things that I'm fascinated by is that we've got tons of evidence all around us every day. We see this with you know, people we know, people we've met, relatives, et cetera, that people go through different stages in, in their lives and they want different things at different times. However, when we're going through that as individuals and it's impacting how we feel about ourselves and our identity and everything, it doesn't feel like it's okay. And I don't know that it's really talked about a lot in too many different places that it actually is okay. You know, occasionally I'll run into something where you know they make that point, but it isn't necessarily widespread. So I'm curious for you, what helped you come to terms with that? Actually, this can be a great thing for you. And it really is just a different space in terms of what you want and, and you know, who you are. And as that changes, what, what helped for you? Well, I think just realizing that life is this massive opportunity and it's yours to take and to do what you will with and that it's okay to move on from something that you were passionate about and was such a big part of your life. Yeah, I just think I embraced the fact that that was then and what is now is totally up to me. It just took a while to move through that and that was just a lot of good conversations with people. Also digging deeper into using the tools that I'd used on clients all those years around your perfect day and your painted picture, which is sort of this thing around where you look three years into the future and you imagine as if you're already there, what does that look like for you? So it really took me going back through that myself and using the tools that I had always advocated for on myself, which was great. And a big part of it that I think helped a lot is that my partner, Josh, and I went away to Australia at one point for a, a trip. And it was right when I was feeling really lost and just, you know, not sure, throwing all these balls up in the air. And we decided to like, literally, I could you not create a spreadsheet of what were sort of things that we wanted to do, what were our priorities. And we broke it down across these sort of seven or eight areas of life that are quite often seen in the wheel of life and and various personal growth type strategies. And I think it was around relationships, health, wealth, career, lifestyle, personal growth, and giving back. Well, basically not giving back, I hate the word back, but giving or impact. 
and just writing those categories down and then thinking, okay, three years from now, where do we want to be? One year from now, where do we want to be? And we just took this whole weekend and it was such a beautiful process. And from there, we actually, we ended up turning that into something that we still use to this day and it's called Life Pilot. And I think it just gave me this, it's essentially a tool that allows you to create a system for how you're going to go about making these things a reality. And it was also a reference point to like, this is where we'd like to be. What do we need to do next month, next week, and even today? And it's just been really powerful for me. It literally was, I think, the savior at that point to get some clarity on the options and then prioritize them and really look at what was important and then work backwards from there to what do I need to do today? And so it just gave me this really great framework from which to be able to figure out what I wanted to do. First of all, it makes my heart happy that you did all that in a spreadsheet. And <laughs> <laughs> you love spreadsheets? <laughs> As it turns out, yes. I just love uh, the level of nerdiness about it that uh, that requires to put all those things into a spreadsheet and consider them all. And so that that makes me really happy. And I'm also curious, you know, as you as you went through that. And as you've been utilizing that as a tool for yourself, what surprised you that uh, maybe you didn't anticipate along the way that was helpful to you? Hmm. Uh, I think what you sometimes don't realize is what you love doesn't necessarily have to be a thing you take into your career or your profession, and that it can just be a hobby or something that drives you, that not everything has to be related to or associated to how am I going to make money from this or an impact. Sometimes it's just turning up and being and enjoying the experience. And that I think the biggest surprise that came out of it is that so many people asked Josh and I about this life pilot thing that we talked about all the time, that we started sharing it with friends, and then we actually ended up turning it into a tool and program that people can use. So, yeah. And not everybody loves spreadsheets, as you know, but it's just been, it's just this really simple yet powerful thing. And I think what came out of it for me is that we overcomplicate too many things. And that actually, as humans, we just need to focus more and have less things and really focus on the things that do count. And that's what I guess that tool helped us to do. And it was neat to see it ripple out and people using it in different ways to do the same for themselves. So that was probably another awesome thing that came out of it is sometimes you can build yourself a system or some sort of framework that works for you. And you never know if that's going to help others as well, which is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. We get uh, probably three or four emails a day that sounds something like, Hey, I'm trying to figure out how I can fit everything that I love into something <laughs> that is earning me money, you know, particular job, but you know, all my passions into, into the thing that is, you know, creating income for me. You know, it, it's a business, it's a job, whatever. And I think that the intention and the excitement there is super cool. And I, I'm always excited to get that type of email. However, I have found for myself that much like you, not everything you enjoy has to be incorporated into you know, what earns you an income. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious, what were some of those things for you? Well, for example, I really love playing tennis as well as ultimate frisbee. And so I don't need to turn that into a business of how to teach people how to play tennis online. Also, I really love painting and art and I don't do enough of it. I really don't. But I also didn't need to turn that into something I thought initially about, oh, I could paint and put things on. I really was just like throwing stuff out there like, oh, I could paint and put things on Etsy or I could create a course about beginner painting. And I was like, no, no, you could just enjoy painting. <laughs> or that. Yeah, or that. And I'm such an avid learner and I, I just think, I guess that what I get people to do, and that's so interesting that you get that question all the time because it's something I get as well, is yeah. 
I just get people to really think about like, you know, if you had to turn up every single day and do this and get paid for it, would that make it still fun and still something you're passionate about or would it start to become a chore? And that's often a, a great question for people to go, hmm, actually, yeah, no, I would still love it. If people paid me to be a surf instructor every day, I'd freaking love it. As opposed to people who are like, oh, no, I couldn't stand that. It would take all the fun out of it. It would take away the instinctiveness of it or the you know, the fact that I can just do it spontaneously. So that's usually quite a good question because even with that, you can often find then how passionate somebody is about something. And I also want to get away from the word passion a little bit as well. It's kind of Oh, what... don't get me started on the word passion. Okay. All right. <laughs> because... You just you just opened up Pandora's box here. All right. Carry on. Because passion doesn't just hit you in the face, does it, one day and go, yeah. oh, I'm passionate about this. What I find is often you start out, you quite like something, then you maybe get a little bit better at it, then you, you get more joy out of it, then you find you're really excited about it. And then one day, maybe a year or two later, you're like, man, I really freaking love this. It doesn't just come overnight, as you know, so you've clearly got some views on that. We can jam. But that to me is just something really curious to me that people are like, I just need to find my passion. And I'm like, well, it's not just going to smack you in the face one day. It's something that you try out across a variety of different things. And as you get better at it and as you feel more progression, that's when you start to see whether you really, really love this thing um, or whether it's just a, yeah, it's cool. I like it, but it's not, it's not for me. Have you ever um, read Grit by Angela Duckworth by any chance? Or heard of Angela I Duckworth? Have, I have heard of her and I have heard of that book and I have not yet read it, but I did actually put it on my reading list the other day and I am reading a lot right now. So thank you for reminding me. Yeah. Well, whether you decide to read it or not, and I do think that you'd enjoy it, Angela has put together and also done some of the best research that I have seen on passion and what it actually is and how it works and breaking it down into a way that I think can be much more useful for people. Because like you, I have found that there's a billion internet sites out there that say something like, find your passion, discover your passion, and everything is going to be okay. And then that's <laughs> not really in reality how it actually works. And to your point, it is much more of a slow play or almost like a you know crockpot style it, it heats up slowly and there's different different things that may trigger it over time and most people when we think of passion we think of you know sparks or fire or flame or those things that are instantaneous and you know i'm just going to show up and then my as you said my passion's going to smack me in the face and everything's going to be good from there and instead in reality it is you know i uh, I don't know. I started drawing as a kid and got some feedback on you know how great my drawing was. And then I later on kept doing that through college. And then I ended up talking to an architect one day and then, you know, it, it visited an architect firm. And now, you know, many, many years later, I love architecture and, you know, being able to design buildings and it's my passion. Um, however, it was a span of 20 years that with all kinds of little touch points for how that happened. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. And then two, I'm curious, you know, what is a better lens to look at that through? I really like talking, and that's a great question. I really like talking about your sweet spot. So it's not my terminology, but I love it. The intersection between what you're good at or maybe great at, what you enjoy doing or maybe love doing, and what people will pay you for. And that is much better in my mind because not everybody's going to pay you for something that you're good at and enjoy doing. And it's when you list those out, and literally you can do it in three columns and just list it out, but you can actually start to see some really nice links and synergies between what you're writing down. So somebody might put, you know, I really enjoy cooking, I really enjoy reading, I like creating and, and writing. And so suddenly you might see, you know, across the columns that actually what about creating and writing some cookbooks 
and being able to then sort of teach that online. So that's, to me, far more preferable and it's something that you can develop over time and you can have multiple sweet spots. But that question of what will people actually pay me for is the bit that stops people from just going nuts on anything and actually deciding, okay, are these skills and experiences that I have going to be valuable for somebody else? And if so, in which ways can I do that? Is it through teaching, consulting, advising, coaching, products or services, which are the main ones, right? You know this as well. Um, I call it in my book, The Freedom Plan, actually, I talk about monetizing your expertise and building your platform because at the end of the day, people go, oh, but I'm not an expert. And I'm like, no, but you're not an expert to you. But when you talk to people and tell them about something that you do and they don't have knowledge in that area and they really need it, you're going to come across as more expert than them. Or what I like is another term is leading learner. You're a couple of steps ahead of them and that's really valuable to them and they'll be likely to want to pay you for that so they can jump up to the level that you're at. And that's a really neat way to think about it is you don't have to be an expert, but you do have to consider what you already do well that comes naturally to you that other people, it just doesn't and they're willing to to pay you for that. You mentioned your book, The Freedom Plan, and I am... I, something I wanted to ask you that you reminded me about is because because you've made so many of these different types of transitions. You know what what does freedom even really mean for you at this point? After it's been, I would say, evolutions over the years. What what does what does that actually mean to you? I love days? that you went there. I always ask that question of other people. What does freedom mean to you? I've asked it in surveys. And you might have asked that to me on when I came on your podcast. I, I don't remember. Done. I think I've asked over a thousand people for sure. For so, so long, freedom meant to me the ability to be able to do what I want, when I want, where I want. And I think there's still a big aspect of that. But what I've realized is that I really appreciate structure and boundaries and constraints because it gives you freedom within that to play. So as I've noticed that, I get a lot more meaning out of the work that I do, out of the people that I hang out with, out of the experiences that I have when there's less freedom, ironically, within which I get to choose from. So I think to me, freedom means the appropriate boundaries and constraints within which to play with full freedom. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. The the first time I've actually said that out loud. So thanks for getting me to talk about it. But I've realized that's really, really important. The constraints do give you more freedom. They give you discipline leads to freedom, as we know. But there is something beautiful about if somebody said to you, hey, where in the world would you travel? That's a massive question. But if somebody said, hey, where within Canada would you most love to travel? It already gives you this feeling of, oh, I've got so much to play with, but not so, so much that I'm actually paralyzed by choice. How do you find that that definition in what you just described about constraints actually providing additional freedom or more freedom or maybe even, let's say, better freedom in some ways? How do you find that that definition is different than what many people may think about freedom? Or is it? Or is it? Well, I think it's something that when you've studied freedom for as long as I have and lived and breathed, that that it takes a while to come to that appreciation of it because freedom is often bandied about in a very sexy way, like, oh, freedom to do this and that. But when I actually surveyed and, and researched this a lot, 
most people were like, that sounds really lovely. Like they used to look at my life as a suitcase entrepreneur and go, I think that's what I want. But the reality of it is I just want to sit back in my comfy armchair and, and watch you do it from afar. And I, I kid you not, like I had that a lot and I was like, huh, maybe freedom isn't what I think it is, or it's not what most people want. At the end of the day though, I think it is about choice. So they get the choice to sit back in their armchair and watch from afar, or they get the choice to be able to dive straight in. And I do think that most people haven't really thought about their definition of freedom fully and that if they did, they might be surprised at what they really, really want out of life. And it might be less than they think and more simplistic and more minimal, actually, in many ways. There's some really... I didn't know I was going to talk so much about research on this. <laughs> we try and stay for away from the research because most people are not as nerdy about that as I am. However, there's some really interesting research that since you bring up you know, freedom really can be much more about having the choice that we as humans need that autonomy and we need that built into our work and our daily lives. And if we don't have that, there's some pretty interesting circumstances that are correlated with that. Like even um, not having it, has higher instances of uh, heart disease developing and some crazy things like that. Mm -hmm. But I have some, found some really great research. I keep seeing this uh, show up again and again and again. There's not a, necessarily any research that directly correlates it, but I found lots of hints at it with different studies where it is directly linked for any kind of ongoing happiness as well over time. If you have the ability to choose an ability to decide some of your circumstances, particularly around the how things get done, then that makes you or allows you to be happier over time. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the and the only caveat there is for people who find it hard to make decisions, less choice is often a good thing, but within the choices that are then available, there's the freedom within to choose. So that's exactly, I'm so glad you pick up on on that. That is exactly the thing that I haven't seen out there that seems to make a major difference that I don't really have any good data to say that, oh, this is unequivocally true. However, what you just pointed out, it maybe is more about the perception of having the choice or having the choice within constraints than it is about having unparalleled choice. Yeah, 100%. I think you're right. Yeah. Because I have seen that too much choice is paralyzing for some people, um, but you do still need choice, some choice in order to feel like you're an independent being who's capable of making decisions and you have some stake and say over your life. And that's important. That's important. That's what makes people happy. When everything's taken away from you and you can't make that decision, you feel like a prisoner. And when there's too much choice, it can feel debilitating. Ironic, really, isn't it? There's a happy it, medium in there somewhere. It is. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> And wonderful, I think, once you, you know, not to uh, play on words too much here, but I think it it frees people up in a lot of ways once they are looking at it from that type of lens that you're describing, where it is really about more of the the in-between or the happy medium, not having complete unparalleled choice, but not having all of your choices restricted as well, especially for those things that are most important to you. So I appreciate you pointing that out. There's another question I really wanted to ask you because you have spent so much time traveling and because you have been in a lot of different situations that, that not everybody in the world has been. And in fact, I would say very few people in the world have been And that is, you know, now having been through, you know, 
making your home in all kinds of different countries and having home shift in a lot of different ways. What makes up home for you right now? Hmm, great question. I've always said that I think home is, because I'm a citizen of the world, home is anywhere that I am and that I guess in many ways my friends are. But it's just a place where I feel comfortable and at ease and safe. Safety didn't ever used to be a real big thing for me, but I've just probably noticed over the years of travel where I put myself in some slightly dodgy situations that taking that for granted a little, that mm. safety and living in a society where, you know, you can walk down the street and you're not going to be attacked. I know that sounds really horrible, but yeah, I think for me, home is where I feel comfortable, where there's kindred spirits, where I'm in an environment that is not too comfortable but has resonance of things that I know and acknowledge and have maybe been brought up with or have been exposed to. Because something beautiful about travel is how you do get exposed to these cultures and environments that are just completely different. And it can be quite a shock to the system. And I think that's great for growth and just acknowledgement and gratitude and humility in many ways. But too much of that all the time can be quite confronting for people who aren't really fully sure of who they are and where they stand. So I like home to me is where there's a certain level of comfort and there's a certain level of curiosity and intrigue. And within that, I find my happy medium. I appreciate you indulging me and sharing that. That is really interesting to hear your answer. And that happy medium pops up back in there too, as it turns out. I know. This is so insightful for me today too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad that I could uh, have you or be a part of some of those insights. Uh, we have, oh my goodness, we haven't even touched some of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. Maybe we'll have to you know, do a part two at some point down the way. However, you know, I am curious for people that want to get more freedom in their lives, particularly for those that want to define what freedom actually means to them, what advice would you give them? And what would you recommend to them as we're beginning to wrap up here? Well, when I talk to people about creating their perfect day, which is literally you just write down and imagine if you could wake up tomorrow with no constraints at all, how would you spend your day? When I get people to do that exercise, and it's actually really fun from morning till night, it's amazing how people realize they actually have um, often more choice and or freedom than they realize. And if they don't, it's about, you know, what would 15, 30 minutes extra time in the morning if you got up earlier to do meditation and yoga or to have a leisurely breakfast with your family be like for you. And if you've always wanted to live by the ocean and go for a swim every morning, what would the local swimming pool look like once or twice a week um, to give you a little bit more of that feeling? Not quite the same, but it's not dissimilar. Um, and suddenly people go, oh, you know what, actually, if I just shifted this and did that and made more time for this, I'd actually have this appropriate level of fun and joy and happiness and freedom in my life. So often it's way more obvious and easy for you to do than you realize. It's just that you've never really clearly defined what it looks like for you. And the minute you do, you you naturally move more towards it. I'm sure you've found that as well. The minute you start, they always say when you buy a new car, for example, suddenly yes. you start seeing that car everywhere. But I think the same is true of if you want a life that's full of swimming and and being by the ocean, suddenly more of that comes into your life. You just make it happen. You focus on it more. You visualize it more. You make more opportunities for it. You hang out with people who um, say, hey, let's go to the pool. Let's go to the river or whatever it may be. I know it's an odd example, but water gives me lots of energy and freedom. And it's amazing how quickly that starts to happen and show up in your life. So it's all about, for me, being really, really clear on what you want. 
Well, I am absolutely a fan of that. We, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about how to get clear on what you want and what that looks like. And I appreciate you sharing some ways to be able to continue to do that as well. And for people that are really interested in, in getting more Natalie, where can they, where can they find more Natalie? <laughs> Over at surprise, surprise, nataliesisson.com. And I'm really excited actually, because I'm, I don't know when this is going out, but I'm literally releasing a new webpage and home site, homepage actually that clearly says more about how do you tap into your potential, get paid to do what you love and get paid to be you um, and and live a life of impact and purpose. So that's kind of my whole trilogy of things that I'm working on. Um, so nataliesisson.com is great. I'm at nataliesisson on Twitter and Instagram all over the show there. And just, yeah, would really love them to come and, and say how they found this, if they learned anything, if they picked up anything around themselves or any nuggets of wisdom, I would love to hear from them. Hey, many of the stories that you've heard on the podcast are from listeners that have decided that they wanted to take action and taken the first step of having a conversation with our team to try and figure out how we can help. And if you want to if you want to implement what you have heard and you want to completely change your life and your career then let's figure out how we can help so here's what i would suggest just open your phone right now and open your email app and i'm going to give you my personal email address scott at happen to your career.com just email me and put conversation in the subject line. And then when you do that, I'll introduce you to the right person on our team and you can have a conversation with us. We'll try and understand your goals and what you want to accomplish in your career, no matter where you're at. And we can figure out the very best way that we can help you and your situation. So open it up right now and send me an email with conversation in the subject line. Scott at happenedyourcareer.com. You know, we would never want to be called a liar. That's that's a, a real hurtful put down. We wouldn't want to lie to our friends, our family, our kids, and yet we lie to ourselves every day. Right? We say we're going to work out. We don't. We say we're going to do that big task that we've been procrastinating on. We don't. Every time we don't do what we say we're going to do, we're reinforcing this identity that we're lying to ourselves and that's somehow okay. All that and plenty more next week right here on Happen to Your Career. Make sure that you don't miss it. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically. Even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios. I'm out. Oh.